0: How do you how do you feel about uh, Ellie Golding pop songs as existential thriller soundtracks?
1: I mean, I was super into Ellie Goulding, right? Like, I loved her back when she's like even like a folk singer because she was folk before she went pop. Yeah, yeah. You, you know. uh, I love that they include that in uh, Killing the Sacred Deer. It, like, it's such a weird the entire film is that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the like odd, unsettling, right. weird. That's
0: going to be the vibe for this uh, whole episode, I'm pretty sure. And uh, yeah. I think we should try to mimic that as much as possible. So uh.
1: <laughs> it's just be super awkward and sing lovely pop songs that have
0: nothing to do yeah. with anything about so stay tuned i don't know maybe maybe cold play x and y let's we'll see
1: hello welcome to film trace this is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception we are kicking off a new cycle season theme we haven't really
0: decided on that part of it yet you've used the word cycle a number of times i like cycle i do let's let's stick with that let's stop being wishy-washy
1: let's be decisive here
0: yeah Uh, like like the movies we're gonna watch very decisive. exactly
1: so the new cycle (laughs) that we're kicking off with our first episode here is existential thrillers Woo! um i think you sort of like you kind of were looking in the direction of thrillers i was like okay but I want to be something more specific and right. weird and more kind of like a, add a layer to it. So I was, you know, let's do existential thrillers. I guess we should try and define that. Sure. sure. It's a, the Socratic method to define our terms. <laughs> uh So, I mean, thriller, I think everybody knows, right? What's a thriller? What would you say a thriller is to you, Chris?
0: Yeah. And I actually just got done talking about this with my students because uh that's, a common I think uh, gray area in like film genres is like thriller kind of fits this weird space between drama and horror. I'd like to think that anyways, there's suspense and tension, but it doesn't necessarily focus too much on uh, gore or monsters though. It could, it's more set in a real world with maybe some, elements that are foreboding and uh inexplicable but uh i mean in a literary sense since i know that's what you you got your master's in what's what is a thriller
1: uh i mean essentially it's something that's suspenseful with some sense of danger Mm -hmm. and oftentimes there's a mystery element involved i think to me a thriller has to have building tension and suspense and usually there's a release by the end it's pretty Mm -hmm. much that Mm -hmm. simple um yeah there's a crossover between and we're gonna talk about the killing of sacred deer which could be like kind of a thriller and a horror kind of mishmash together a little bit but i think it's almost like i would say in my mind thriller might be more generalized and like horror technically could might live underneath it in some way it's like a more umbrella sure sure um but I think everybody kind of has an idea of what a thriller is. The tougher part of this is existential. Yes, and where so do we want is... where do we want to bite into the apple of that?
0: Huh? <laughs> we're where? we're kind. Of, oh yeah, good job setting up the the metaphor <laughs> for men. Um, <laughs> we we've, we're kind of cementing ourselves with these genre tags uh, as being the theme of a given cycle of films. Looking through the history, and evolution, and current stasis, status of. Um, the world of movies, uh, through philosophy. Cause we yeah. basically talked about, you know, a very simple version of postmodernism with self-aware horror, yep. um, from scream 2022, 2022, all the way to last house on the left, 1972. Um, and here we are doing something a little similar. I feel in which you've got essentially a philosophy that's being the, the center of, um, uh, a, a mystery movie so i think there is that mysterious element to it it's just more more found in like the cerebral kind of thrillers i think that's the netflix tag version yeah of what we're right doing right. um but you know i mean i i used to teach existentialism when uh, um, reading the stranger with 12th graders okay. but i haven't i haven't really thought about the term in a while so yeah well, what what, what do you think of what kind of characters are we dealing with? What kind of protagonists are at the center of existential thrillers?
1: Well, I think it's like the term's tough for two reasons. One, because there is a philosophical movement that happened in the, the middle of the 20th century that is existentialism. And like people might have a vague with Camus and Sartre and, and those types of people. They might have an understanding of that. I almost think that that's kind of its own thing whereas the term existential has sort of taken on a life of its own like language tends to do uh where generally speaking the most common phrase that people would say is i'm having an existential crisis sure yeah and so that's kind of the um the starting point for a lot of people in this term i mean but the, the type of protagonists that we're looking at are people who tend to be alienated people who tend to be confused about themselves confused about the world uh, and, and not in a trivial way, in a right. very deep... Uh, Life or death manner. Yeah, almost metaphysical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really know who they are. They don't really know what's going on. Um, and they, there's a sense of... And one of the key terms mm-hmm. in existential philosophy is anxiety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... It's an alienation. It's a confusion that creates a lot of stress and anxiety, which I think everybody in modern day life can have a full understanding of this on a daily basis. Um, And so I think we were talking about existential thrillers. It's just adding those elements together. It's a thriller movie in a very traditional sense uh, with those key genre conventions, the suspense, uh, the mystery element to it, but adding on that layer of confusion about who you are confusion about where you are in the world what other people are up to you and where you yeah. fit into the world that creates a sense of anxiety that
0: needs right how you identify even... yourself in relation yep. to the world yeah
1: exactly yeah there's a, there's a key element of sort of self-identity involved and a confusion with that um so i think that it's a pretty like i think it's a good bullseye and i would what blows my mind is that we chose men <laughs> to do this not knowing what the film was really about right uh, because we chose this theme and cycle before uh we saw the film. i think we both saw it yesterday actually Mm -hmm. um and so i am blown away by how much of a home run that men fits into the existential thriller category it's almost like a textbook example of it
0: and i you know i was actually kind of worried because yes we we picked this tag uh when we were um kind of Titulated by the the teaser trailer a few months ago. Um, But there was very little information about what the actual plot of the film was, right? Uh, And then we get closer to release date, and there's a fuller trailer that's released, and it it essentially ends up getting marketed, and I don't know if this A24 is doing, or, you know, the general critics' consensus and uh, coverage of the film and interviews with Garland and the press circuit and what have you, but I feel like it's now being touted more as a horror film than as a thriller, which is kind of interesting because, and I was kind of worried going into that, that essentially we'd accidentally chosen another like slasher movie, you know? (laughs) Um, But it actually, I don't think I don't, I I find very little to do with the horror genre in this movie. And I think a large part of that has to do with the, the the guy at the center of this all, which is writer director, Alex Garland. Um, Yeah, of course, he actually was somebody that we uh, discussed for the previous cycle when we had our episode on 28 Days Later. Uh, It's the 20th anniversary of that film. And so we went back and revisited it. And it was one of his earlier uh, scripts and way before he got into the directing game. um, But essentially, like we had talked about on that episode, there's so much that that movie's trying to do that. Yes, has like this skeleton of uh, being like built on the bones of Romero's films, but essentially is doing all these other things with drama and thriller and suspense. And we have and Alex Garland then, you know, dove into sci fi after that. So I was also a little bit concerned, like, wait, are we going to get some kind of like sci fi explanation? Um, we should probably set up what the heck is the log line of men before we get too far. Right. <laughs> go for it what is the log line well we're going to imdb to make it as simple and incorrect as possible uh (laughs) they have for their synopsis a young woman goes on a solo vacation to the english countryside following the death of her ex-husband period no mention of what she finds there
1: it doesn't feel like a vacation though
0: yeah it's like uh a... like a getaway she's still like working
1: isn't it like <laughs> right. she's like working on something yeah so it's like she it's the whole like remote work pandemic thing a little bit she's getting out bit. to the countryside to sort of decompress after her husband her hu- husband's untimely uh guess it's right. spoiler alert it's not really a spoiler suicide
0: yeah i mean we we kind of see it in the opening shots right yeah. but it's kind of left open as to how whether or not it is definitively a suicide and it's also not definitively her ex-husband it's like they're they're in the midst of separating and
1: correct yeah, they have yeah. not gotten divorced yet right i think that's pretty stated pretty clearly in their discussion so um imdb is kind of falling short again every single time. <laughs> just uh, like we wanted to before we dive into men completely though should sure. we talk about Alex garland from a yes. higher level
0: like <laughs> yeah, we all have really? baggage with
1: him because i always want to i want to get our biases out front because uh-huh. <laughs> um you know i think you know from my perspective obviously i love 20 days later is one of my favorite films i think it's a great script he did a wonderful job with that uh sunshine i think we did we see sunshine together i feel like we
0: did maybe I think, uh yeah, back in repressed that though
1: yeah yeah uh interesting ride of a film didn't love it uh, at all the first hour is pretty cool the rest of it didn't love um he did some rewrites on 20 Weeks Later. We all know that that movie's not great. Um, uh, never Let Me Go, I've n- actually never seen Ex Mahina and Annihilation are really the starting points of his directorial career here, uh, neither of which I really like that much. Um, <laughs> I would say Ex Mahina was a great idea that um, did not play out that well uh, in execution, and I think Annihilation is um, a film that I just did not really like at all. Um, what about you? What's your baggage? I, so I like his ideas. I just, mm-hmm. on his directorial side, I'm not not the biggest fan.
0: Yeah, so you have more of a negative bias and mine's more positive, though I am very self-aware of <laughs> the, the, the kind of fractures in um, his ability, both as a storyteller and as a director. Though I do think, and there seems to be a number of critics that seem to agree, that uh, as bonkers as men is, it might be like the most fully like detailed and compelling uh, version of what's been kind of rattling in his brain for a while. And I think part of that is not only because he's gotten some practice along the way, but also because it's a script that he's been tinkering with for a number of years, but we'll get back to that. I, I, yes, I, I think sunshine is probably his low point. Um, I think he was trying some interesting things there conceptually, like, like, it seems we agree. He he's always on the mark. Um, never let me go. I read the book, but I've not gotten around to seeing the movie because I'm concerned about it and how it will both color my th- thoughts about the novel as well as uh, Alex Garland. Um, he also made the FX series *Devs*, which I've never uh, explored, um, but I absolutely adore both *Ex Machina* and *Annihilation*. Oh no! This Knowing is be
1: a real fun episode I full
0: well that they you know you. It's it's it, it's very much like a, I'm aware of my subject subjectivity here, but I like messes like I really enjoy uh, a a filmmaker that has like this utmost clinical control of his craft until the third act. Like that's fun for me, <laughs> That I'm like, whoa, what is like where what how did how did you let the wheels go, Alex? And yet <sighs> now this is like, uh, I don't know. After a hat trick of insane third acts, I think that it be- become it's become pretty clear now that like it wasn't him making mistakes, it was him making deliberate choices all, yeah. all along. <laughs> that's,
1: a, that's quite fair. Yeah, it's kind of become his style that yeah. uh, the film takes on a different dimension as it comes to a conclusion.
0: Right, right. So, yeah, this will be interesting. So let's let's talk about men. How much did you know? going into the movie because i deliver i am one of those people that I, I very much try to avoid as much as possible before i, I sit down i do nothing okay In yeah fact, Yeah.
1: I, I just saw the trailer um and i was like I, I, you know i i will i will show up for an alex garland film just because like you said he he always swings for the fences like, yeah i like that and respect that even if he fails like it's kind of fun uh, so I was definitely there, but I didn't know anything about it. I didn't read any news about it, really. I just heard some rumblings on on distribution and stuff like that, in box office. But that's really it.
0: Yeah, it's and I and similarly, like I, maybe that was more of my choice going into it. But uh, especially with like a title like this, I think that it it almost invites outwardly. And I think A twenty four has already kind of made this kind of their brand because I remember doing a similar thing when Midsummer. Yes. Was approaching, and I knew how insane hereditary was. So I wanted to go into midsummer as cold as possible, and you no, know, and really having like, I, I I think Ex Machina's third act is nuts, but it still kind of feel it doesn't like go to this like tone like doesn't do the tonal shift that Annihilation does in its third act, mm-hmm. and so when I was both like hypnotized by Ex Machina and then like just wide-eyed and speechless after Annihilation. That was a signal to me that like we're dealing with like capital A auteur kind of like I, I, I never saw it, but I think some, a lot of people tried to do this with uh, Darren Aronofsky's mother, which men is getting a lot of comparisons to. Oh my
1: God. I wish we did an <laughs> episode on that. <laughs> we we'll just no, wait but that's a, the anniversary. It's a very good point because it, it, uh, it feels right in line with that type of film.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, someone who's super creative has a lot of interesting ideas uh, someone's giving him, we don't have a budget on this one. I'm, I'm guessing probably around 15 to 20 million, similar mm-hmm. to Ex Mahina. He, he's not going to get the Annihilation budget ever again, which no, is like 45, no,
0: no. 55. Blue is loaded.
1: Um yeah. But yeah, it's fr- kind of free reign. Just go for it, whatever you want to do. It's, and this is the, the, his production partners here are DNA Films, who he's worked with all his entire career has been DNA Films. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, it's a comfortable place for him to kind of do whatever he wants. And I think you, yeah. can, you definitely see that on screen.
0: Yeah, there's and, not a lot of
1: hesitation here.
0: Right, and he's become uh, one of those auteurs now that's like third film. He's got his ca- his crew, right? Mm-hmm. He had some, you know, Oscar Isaac both in Annihilation, Ex Machina, and there was another actor that was in both as well. And he's making that departure. But in terms of like the craft side of it, I mean, he's got the same composers creating a haunting score. He's got the same cinematographer that like probably knows by now exactly how Alex Garland wants his trees to be shot. And there's there's this kind of uh synchronicity to it that um is expected by now, and yet he's in the New York Times talking about how he's gonna take a break after directing. Uh that if interview not, is
1: really weird.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's he's a fascinating and very strange man. But yeah, he's he's got this movie he's working with Kirsten Dunst now called Civil War. And similarly a lot of those same people are are back like he literally wrapped men friday and then started civil war on monday right. uh but it just feels like the 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 workload like it's got to take a lot out of you to make these movies not only because there's a lot going on conceptually but also like literally this is his third movie where it has the central theme of isolation right yeah. uh-huh. um and Oscar Isaac's laboratory and ex Machina is in the middle of Luscious Woods. Annihilation is about, you know, this trek to this place where nature has taken over maybe an extraterrestrial uh presence as well, um, in the middle of nowhere. And now here we are, Jesse Buckley's character, uh Harper, going deliberate making a choice to go to the middle of nowhere to isolate. And it's it that's gotta be like this. I, why do these people keep coming back to work for him? What is it about this man? <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, we'll, kind we'll go of to
1: something. The... I think he's probably one of those guys who, if you sit, sat down and had like a drink with him at a bar, and he wanted to describe the, his idea to you after an hour, you would be sold, right? And be like, this guy has thought about everything. He's so passionate about it that mm-hmm. you can't make movies like this unless you're all in. Uh, and I think that dedication and passion is infectious. And I think he gets you know great artists to work with him because of that um and this one you know specifically too it's like this film i don't know it feels to me kind of what you've been hinting at it feels like he's so comfortable in this element (laughs) Mm -hmm. everything about it um and i think when seeing it it feels like a film it doesn't have the rawness of say an earlier work from a, a really sort of a strong artist who's confident that wants to say something. It doesn't have that element to it. It has this sort of calm, steady, growing suspense throughout the entire thing. It's really that part of it's very well done. Yeah. Um, I think where it starts to, where the conflict starts. And when you look at the critics and the critical consensus here is when you're moving from the visuals and the vibe to use the lovely zoomer term, um, (laughs) to the content and i think that you know when looking back at ex mahina specifically ex mahina which was a, a movie about philosophy essentially about artificial intelligence the vibes were all there and the vibes were for the most part all in annihilation the visuals the sound everything it just looked really engaging and, and awesome um but when you move into the sort of the meaty meat on the bones content and ideas that's where things get really muddled i think with him and very mm-hmm. nebulous and i think men you know if we're diving into you know sort of the the broader uh performance here uh, of the film in terms of what he's trying to accomplish wow dude like muddled doesn't even be in to, <laughs> to describe yeah. the last A third of this film i mean maybe we should sort of think about it in terms of like the 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 cycle theme here yeah of like okay is this is definitely a thriller in what
0: sense is it a thriller uh i mean the the biggest observation i made in terms of like traditional genre trappings is like there was a few different points in the movie where i realized like wait a second is this just going to be like a strange home invasion thriller (laughs) right where awesome. I, I mean love it's that. Yeah. I know. You yeah, you puritanical <laughs> bastard. Uh, he where like there are so many really affecting traditional shots of uh Harper getting stalked, getting followed, getting watched. And that was like, I mean, I think that that's where so much of the thriller genre comes from is yeah. that voyeurism, right? Mm-hmm. And we'll see that as we traverse the history of uh, the genre throughout the cycle of episodes we have here. But in in some cases, there is that really strong, in some scenes, there is that really strong feeling of, okay, I I, I don't want to know what happens next, but I'm going to keep watching because yeah. there's this other half of me, this sadistic half of me that wants to keep watching, which is another kind of more self-aware horror uh, characteristic as well that we came back again and again with, with you know starting with Wes Craven's Last House on the Left which was all about you know trying to challenge the audience and wonder and provoke and poke and ask do you want to see this or not
1: yeah no I think that that and I think with this film and the way that he paces it out in the opening hour I would say he hits those genre conventions incredibly well uh and the building of tension and the building of suspense and that voyeurism because of his skill set and what he's so strong at um it's very powerful you know her walking alone in the woods yeah uh, she's already in this huge house she's isolated there's a you know the caretaker is kind of a weird guy but he doesn't seem very dangerous at all She takes off into the beautiful British um, countryside. And there's this moment, this tunnel moment, which is in the trailer. So you see it, Um, you know, in the echoing through the tunnel. And then I thought that was very deft how he did that. Like Mm -hmm. he, he built this sense of calm with her and sort of peace and transparency. And then it's immediately the moment she becomes relaxed and we we become relaxed as the audience there's this eruption yeah and it's very it's a very small thing it's just a guy gets up in the tunnel and starts running after her uh very 28 days
0: later ish yeah and it
1: looked like that it did look like that and i was i was very impressed with all of that because the thriller aspect of this works incredibly well Mm -hmm. um and it, it, it tends, but it's, what's bizarre about it to me is he gets all of that stuff right. um, But it's almost like he doesn't believe in his own ability to continue to build tension. There's a lot of reviews that <laughs> come out about this and it's sort of like, oh, well, you know, um, you know, he it never turns off the suspense. I, I totally disagree with that because there's a scene, that scene that I'm talking about and she sort of gets herself out of that situation through climbing some through the forest and and kind of making your way back to the house and then she turns around and takes a picture of this old house and there's a naked man standing there the guy who presumably was chasing her he's just standing there and it's all of a sudden when he does this it's the tension and the mystery of it is gone like that it's just there he is that's the guy who was chasing her there's no
0: more mystery so is that where where it lost you
1: no 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 definitely not <laughs> okay <laughs> she goes back to the house and then the guy continues to you know she's uh is it the next day where she's like working and he's outside naked like watching her
0: uh or it's that later night. that afternoon i, think it's I feel that, like okay. that was like a morning stroll and then yeah yeah
1: and even by then it's like okay i'm still with you but like if i'm built, if i'm making a thriller it's like it's like jaws wait to show the shark Right, you don't need to show the shark in the first moment uh, or in the first half hour, and I think, I think for me that's when it starts shifting away mm-hmm. towards a traditional thriller. It, it border, I mean, what does it become after that? Is it, the last third a horror film?
0: Okay, so we need to talk about the elephant in the room before we get too much deeper into the second yeah. and third acts, which is that uh, Garland makes the very bold choice of having Rory Kinnear, character, actor, uh, play every single male character in the film except for her soon-to-be ex-husband in flashbacks. Yeah. Right? Uh, So at first, the caretaker, like you mentioned, he's kind of strange but seems harmless. Uh, And then we see the naked man that's stalking her. He's cut up or wounded somehow, but he looks like a bald version of the caretaker and so we're wondering, like, did what happened at least what I'm wondering is, you know, did the caretaker like something happened to him and all his hair fell out? I'm like, what, what the hell going on, Alex? Yeah. Um, but then as soon and I, I really didn't fully realize that he had gone with this like theatrical conceit until because I saw like glimpses of the police officers that came to arrest the naked man in the front yard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, wait a second, that actor looks kind of like Rory Kinnear too and then it's when uh, you have she sits down with a female police officer to give her account, and you fully realize that like yes it's the same actor playing at least now three fully different characters the male police officer that she doesn't interact with at first and the caretaker and the stalker and then she goes to a pub later that night and there's more Rory Kinnears the bartender the you know bar flies and uh, she goes to a church, the vicar. There's even a little boy. with That's a
1: Because you can see the de-aging technology. Right,
0: right. right. Which which maybe is a choice or maybe was like him realizing he couldn't get it to look much better than the Irishman. So he just said, let's make it a choice. Um, I don't know. But I mean, there's definitely those moments where you are forced to kind of reckon with this this existential question, which I think comes back to your comment about, you know, when do you show the monster? But if part of the central conceit is that Harper, our protagonist, sees all the men in this town as the same, then it feels like that's that's a thematically appropriate choice, in my opinion, to make it seem like there's this... Threat to her, and the threat is like homogenous and all-consuming and all-surrounding, and it's all the same face.
1: Good point, I'll, I'll take that. But I would, I would parry back with this: is that does she ever acknowledge that they're all the same people?
0: No, she doesn't, and that's clearly that. That's part of that, you know, taking you out of it, kind of like the de-aged face, where it's like, okay, so we're supposed to accept that she doesn't see those people, but that's clearly a choice on behalf of the director. Is that
1: what really happens though? I I guess that's a little part that I was confused on. Does she not realize that they're all the same people?
0: I mean, I I mentioned how it's theatrical because that's like literally a theater technique, right. To keep casts small on stage performances. So that like, it's very common that, you know, if one actor is playing the protagonist, but then there's like one actor that's playing various supporting roles, uh, and the, the, I mean, the character, the protagonist doesn't acknowledge that because then that would break from the, you know, artifice of uh, a, a cast of characters. And to his credit, like, I didn't think of Rory Kinnear as much more than just the guy from that one Black Mirror episode. <laughs> um, but uh, he does incredibly well, I think, with the task at hand, um, yeah. even if it takes us out of the movie. it. It feels like, you know, you got this push and pull. Garland saying, take yourself out and start asking questions. And Rory Kinnear's job is to try to make it, try to sell it as much as he can to both Jesse Buckley's character and to the audience. And I liked I liked that tension, even though I was very skeptical of it at first when it was uh, apparent. Yeah. Um, but then I think the other elephant in the room that we need to dig into... Is that third act, which is a
1: lot of elephants, (laughs) where
0: where there's so much being thrown at the wall that it's not just about you know the titular men in this town slash in Jesse Buckley's world, um, but about so much more birth and nature and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Birth, nature, stuff, man.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Before we talk about the third act, we I think I I do want to talk a little bit about, and I think this fits into the existential part of this is her husband's suicide mm-hmm. and the flashbacks because if this was just all taking place in the village in that present day and we didn't see those pretty um intense flashback sequences it, 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 the formalism of the film might to me have worked a lot more um but when there's i don't know how many flashbacks there there's probably like three or four um where she's reliving a, a fight with her husband at the time uh, and he is, um, you know, going through, uh, so he's abusive. He's going through obviously some sort of mental illness issue. Um, and she's decided to get divorced and they fight and he threatens to kill himself. Uh, which is, you know, a form of emotional abuse. And then, um, he hits her. It literally hits her in the face, punches her right in the face. Uh, and that, that sort of creates this extreme reaction on her side, obviously, where she's like get out and then that's uh, presumably when he um you know th- and it, it. there's a moment where it's like oh did he actually kill himself or did he slip trying to get back into the apartment i, I mean i don't know that's sort of confusion also why are we doing that like you don't need to do that <laughs> um all those flashbacks and stuff to me imply it adds that layer of existential confusion because she's trying to ultimately understand one why did he abuse her in that way why did he erupt in that way two um why did he take his own life yeah you know why did he go through that action and then there's all of this potential guilt involved on her side of what if i did x what if i did y um and i think there's a certain sort of she has lost herself in a very deep way um, which adds to you know going to a strange place you don't know, she's already lost inside. And then that the, the sort of oddness of the village and the inhabitants sort of adds another layer of confusion about what happened to her husband and what how she responded, how she was responsible, how she's supposed to move on. Yep. Um, and it's all intertwining. I thought that actually was really fascinating. Um, but I have no idea what any of this has to do with the third act. <laughs> I couldn't even uh, if you, yeah, if you paid me a million dollars, I'd be like, I, I got nothing. I couldn't draw you a line. If I drew you a line, it would be like scribbles.
0: Yeah. And- so how?
1: I mean, <laughs> the third act, like, okay, so when do you define the third act as starting? When she gets back to the house?
0: Yes. When she has essentially decided to call her friend Riley, who she FaceTimes with throughout the film, um, and take her friend up on her offer of coming to stay the night with her. I think that turn right there is uh, when things go bananas. Uh, And I mean, Alex Garland has said this in numerous interviews, not just for this uh, press circuit, but for his other films as well. Um, uh, And he said it again here with IndieWire, quote, I think usually interpretations on films are more telling about the person doing the interpretation rather than the film itself, which feels, is is like one of those, you know, Brechtian cop-outs in some respects, uh, right? Where it's like, I I don't know what I was trying to do, you figure it out. (laughs) But but at the same time, like, I personally enjoy wrestling with those kinds of messes, like I mentioned earlier. I think that uh, Annihilation, um, for all its craft, like if it hadn't had that Bonkers uh, third act turn centering on Natalie Portman's character, uh, I I probably would have been like, oh yeah, that's a slightly memorable sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that that's what makes men,, uh, for all its very apparent um, questionings, uh, debatably, a, a kind of interesting, combination of what he was trying to do in Ex Machina with the, like the the sense of atmosphere and the question of uh birth and nature which are, I think are legitimate things in Ex Machina both thematically and conceptually mm-hmm. and he brings those back here and I wonder like if he was tinkering with this screenplay for 15 years mm-hmm. you know was it essentially this third act that he really couldn't crack until he figured out what he was going to do both with Ex Machina and then with Annihilation. So like the atmosphere and craft of Ex Machina combined with the banana's third act turn of an- Annihilation and he gets to say that it's not based on anything. It's, you know, from his fucked up mind uh and you've got men. And does it congeal? No. <laughs> not at all. I think it's very fair criticism to call it a muddled Uh, film both thematically and conceptually but is it compelling i think absolutely um i i was i was sold uh,
1: what do you you find compelling like what was compelling about it to you and i I mean that in like a accusatory way (laughs) (laughs) how could
0: you possibly
1: just like really uh what did you find so compelling about it
0: i found a compelling uh, well, to go back to your question, you're kind of wondering about you know the connection between what's going on with Harper in the present day in this uh, Airbnb <laughs> versus yeah. her past traumas, and this is something that's going to come up a lot this cycle, right? Um, we are going to talk at length about uh, Michael Douglas's character in the game, who also is had this traumatic experience, though it's years later. Um, of of a loved one committing suicide right Mm -hmm. um and you know mads mickelson's character in the hunt we'll talk about how he deals with a traumatic situation and it it gets spun into a thriller yarn uh stephen ray's ira character in the crying game like that is going to be this continual question and i think that by i don't think that throwing spaghetti at the wall is ever like just for its own purposes a good idea for a filmmaker to do but when you have somebody that is able to do it in such a like visually uh innovative and like disturbingly um nightmarish way like Alex Garland then then I'm going to that I'm going to be in I'm going to follow it all the way to the end and laugh at it and chew on it and be shocked by it, because, you know, that's that's kind of one of the things that I'm always looking for in movies. And I think one of the most fascinating things, just by, like, reading up on people's reactions to it, that it, it really makes us think about when it comes to, you know, the the main theme of gender and mm-hmm. uh, because that is very much built into both the backstory, like you said, with her interactions with him and emotional abuse uh, as a, as a husband, but then also with these interactions with Roy Kinnear's various characters, both like, you know, the nice guy caretaker that could turn on you if you're not careful and the, the priest that's constantly judging you um, and how like little boys are socialized uh, mm-hmm. to a, expect whatever they want from a potentially maternal figure. And so, like, to end with birth and nature, I think the nature part is, like, Garland's uh, careerist kind of common thread. Like, even in Sunshine, right, Mm -hmm. there's, like, that focus on the garden and the spaceship. Um, And the birth part is more going back to, like, the origins of, um, metaphorically, her grief and the... Uh, gender parody and the uh, uh, starting over aspect of her coming to this house in the middle of nowhere and so there's enough there where it where it's exciting and it's thrilling and a lot of the response has been like oh that disgusting third act but like I found myself like because he does this thing spoiler alert if you haven't been spoiled enough already where it's not just like a birth scene with like a, a vaginal opening and everything but like it's done ad nauseum like birth upon birth upon birth and there's all these close-ups of this vaginal imagery um but like i, I found myself immediately being like wait a second like i find this like horrific or disgusting but like i, sh- I shouldn't be finding birth horrific or disgusting even in this like very like home invasionist thing so it, it, i think it does a good job of asking enough questions while not trying to answer any of them but i don't think that isle Scarland's is the kind of filmmaker that wants to answer questions
1: no of course not like he just wants to put it out there and see what happens and in this yeah. case a lot's happening in terms of the reaction like it is um you know i think he, you obviously have a certain read on it like the the specific scene that you're talking about the birthing scene the thing that didn't trouble me so much about it didn't seem all that disgusting. Like it was kind of like any sort of gory film. Um you know, no worse than anything in Dead Alive,
0: right? Um But that's the thing, like it's not gore, right? There's I would disagree the, with that. I would disagree the, with that. I the, would hand, say the that hand is gore. Was and that? like the like the 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 cut-up hand and the broken foot, but like the actual like birthing of of Rory Kinnear over and over again,
1: yeah, it's absolutely. Go- I would absolutely say that it's a gore, it's a gore, it's going for gore <laughs> without a doubt. And I think that's the reasons where I was sort of like, I think that's this scene where I was like, oh, like I absolutely hate this movie, like vehemently, because like it's a moment that is so self masturbatory, mm-hmm. right? It is just like so over the top and so without any sort of self-awareness like zero and then he proceeds to just shove it in our face over and over again <laughs> and it's like dude i get what you're going for that's kind of a cool idea but how many times does it happen four or five times yeah i mean i wanted to walk out like i was just <laughs> like this is just dumb <laughs> like and like the, the grotesque part of it, it's like whatever like I, either it's gore or whatever it's you know and you talk about sort of the female aspect of it oh my god the amount of baggage with that of a man trying to make a movie mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. that speaks some sort of deep truth about womenhood uh incredibly problematic nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that uh but trying to go for it in that way god why did jesse buckley sign to this man did you read the script i mean my god um
0: <laughs> but that's part- But I, okay. I think
1: i i represent kind of a broader response to it yeah right?
0: and i like, mean that, i i like i'm i laughed at that ending but i, I and he doesn't come across as like a, a guy with a sense of humor necessarily but you have to have some kind of Like levity to it. I think Rory Kinnear has a lot of levity as an actor, and I don't think it's a mistake that he picked him. But I also think that, like, it's interesting you bring up the question of like Jesse Buckley, who's very talented and is like an incredible rising star in uh, Hollywood and beyond, uh, would sign on to it because you could say the same, you could say similar things of like Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina and uh, 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 Natalie Portman and all the other female characters in annihilation like this is this has become garland's thing is okay. uh, there's a the 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 ringer podcast um is an interesting dissection of that both from a uh, male critic point of view and female critic point of view where it's like it almost feels it, it 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 feels like this is one guy's eternal quest as an author to answer the question what is woman and <laughs> and he he does it i don't know i was i was worried about that i honestly was very concerned about that aspect of it a guy director uh trying to make a movie about how horrific men are has a gender um and yet i i just came out of it with such like just like shaking my head but in a way that like got me thinking that got me uh excited to see where what the heck this civil war movie is going to be <laughs> um and i think that that's ultimately i don't know i think it, it, it as much as i hate that kind of rectian cop-out answer of well what's your interpretation i for whatever reason i think it works it reminded me actually a lot of another movie i like a lot um by a director that's otherwise very respected denny veleneuve um yeah. And I, I like all his movies to some degree, but I think my favorite is the movie he did uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal called Enemy. Yeah. And it also has, like, this batshit third act, and yet it's something that sticks with you. Like, I don't—it comes back to a question uh, argument that we've had a number of times on this podcast. Is it better to be memorable or to be cohesive? And I— I feel like maybe you you err on the I'm side of cohesive. I definitely on the
1: cohesive side. Yeah, and I'm yeah. more on the
0: side of uh, <laughs> memorable. We were talking about that with 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 House, right? The 1977 yes. Japanese film.
1: Yeah. I mean, they both have their um yeah, they both have their effects and consequences. Ooh. You know, cuz you talk about like a movie like House, like houses, you know, a lot of people are into it, you know, whatever 40 years later I guess it was. Yeah. Um and it, it's had this huge impact on artists. Right. And, and, but like, has it had an impact on a broader category of people? Not really at all. I think this movie is going to be one of those similar ones as well. You look at the general audience reaction D plus cinema score, uh, <laughs> horrific. Uh, Rotten Tomato score, audience, variant score of 43%. Awful. Um, 39% all score. I mean, these are just terrible scores across. The- I love the Google scores, 21%. Amazing. That's like a- I've never seen anything like that in my life. I don't think I've ever seen anything below like 70. Right. Um, but the critics kind of like it right percent yeah. on tomatoes 62 percent uh, top critics are a little bit less buoyant about it um but yeah i mean it's, it's a really good point it's like what you know in terms of cultural importance if we talk about that th- there's no doubt in my mind this movie is going to have an effect on creatives and artists and filmmakers in the future i, I but i think that that um yeah that effect is going to be really niche uh, yeah. It's going to be isolated. It's not really going to go out to any sort of group beyond that. Um, and I love, I, I'm really excited to talk about uh, the chaser film here. Yes. Uh, Cause it, the killing of a sacred deer came out in 2017. Uh, the really good companion piece to this one. How, what if you filtered it through that sort of dichotomy, you know, memorable versus cohesive.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, it's a fascinating uh, kind of coincidence that we wound up picking both of these films not really realizing, in my opinion anyways, how uh, similar thematically they would end up being. I, I had seen Killing of Sacred Deer uh, like in 2018, about a year after its release. This is its five year anniversary and I watched it kind of with one eye open uh, um, going in and out of sleep. Um, so I gave it a full like, careful watch this time And I was like, this movie's even stranger than I remember. And I knew that it was going to be strange because I had seen Yorgos Lanthimos, the Greek director's uh, other films, Dogtooth, and um, uh, The Favourite, which he's probably most known for by now, but also The Lobster, which also featured Colin Farrell in the lead role. And so I think even more so than Alice Garland, you know that Lanthimos has a very apparent and distinct sense of humor, right? And so that's maybe what uh, makes his movies a little more palatable, even though they're just as, if not more strange in terms of like storytelling and characterization and acting. Uh, But I, I'm so with Killing of a Sacred Deer. I think it's an amazing film one. But in this, in this case, I, I, I really dislike the ending. Yeah. Okay. What, awesome. Where did awesome. where did you? Oh well, I I I maybe it's the opposite reason because it's just a very kind of blunt and succinct ending. Exactly it's where
1: mechanical people it's, think the movies yeah. are mechanical.
0: Yeah. Did yeah. you feel that way in like a positive or negative way?
1: Oh, an incredibly positive way. Oh my god. Yeah, it's so <laughs> tight. It's like tight as a snare drum. The whole thing. Yeah. And it's so. Uh, the reason that I like that is because the ending. What the ending does in Killing of Sacred Deer is it reifies the entire previous 90 minutes or whatever. And so what it does to the story and the experience of watching the film is that you go back and if you rewatch it after you've seen the ending, every scene takes on a more heightened, to me at least, a more heightened uh, sense of importance. Every single scene. Because it's all leading towards this one end. Mm-hmm. um and sort of uh, there's a you know um a stabilization essentially in that story uh, uh, a stabilization of justice justice has been fulfilled in a very mythological bizarre crazy way but because it's mechanical and because you know essentially the circle is closed at the end it just feels like a much fuller cinematic experience to me a narrative experience as it's say. I should say, um, so that it, it. I don't know it. To me, it's it's going to stay with me way longer than men will, really. Because if I try to go back and watch men, I'd be like, well, none of this matters because it's all nonsensical. <laughs> like it's all, it's absurdist, and like absurdism is fine. Uh, it works in some things, like the movie Hot Rod works really well in that movie. <laughs> um, but uh, it works well in comedy. I should I should should say overall, but with men because i don't think the circles ever closed in the narrative at all and it's open-ended um it makes it i don't know to me it lessens the entire impact one of the film itself and the scenes and and experience them but to the author's intention and what he's trying to say um i think when you look at killing a sacred deer you, it may not have a thesis behind it, but it has a lot of emotional and poetic points to make. Um, and I can't necessarily say that about men. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't, and you look at a lot of some of the the reviews and stuff, and they never pretty harsh, some of them, but I think the ones that stick out to me, um, uh, and this is a good dichotomy, is that Killing of a Sacred Deer felt very complete well thought out well planned and well executed whereas men felt i think um creative <laughs> but not planned in any sort of way that would make any logical sense uh to a viewer uh and not really completed i think one of the viewers or one of the reviews i can't remember which one it says this feels incomplete to me <laughs> and i think that's the thing that sticks out to me is like that's not Men to me in the third act just screams to me, You didn't know how to finish the story. And uh, you know, uh, it, films can get away with that because they're a visual and audio me- medium, but ultimately they can't get away with it because it's still a story at the end of the day. And if you can't complete the story, and I would make the same criticism of Annihilation, especially uh, and Ex Mahina de Sundaria, I think that's just boring at the end. Um, <laughs> It's like he doesn't, you know, for a novelist, too. He's a novelist. he got to start as a novelist. And The Beach was his big book. He was the voice of Generation X, Alex Garland. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just expect more a more literary completist uh, final product. And it's just, it's not there. I mean, I don't know. Am I being unfair to him?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a certain literary quality that could easily be argued on the other side of the coin where it's like, uh, I mean I'm I'm constantly trying to uh, encourage students both of film and literature that like you don't have to have everything wrapped up. I would actually almost ironically argue that killing of a sacred deer feels more incomplete because it feels to me like it's just okay uh, by the way, here's the if you don't know the the, the film, the setup is that uh, Colin Farrell plays, Steven, a surgeon who uh, befriends a teenage boy who happens, we find out later, is the son of a man that he accidentally lost uh, who died on the operating table. Mm-hmm. And so the teenage boy has a, uh, tried to like reel Colin Farrell's character in and then presents him with this kind of ice-cold revenge, uh, angel of death-style fantastical, unrealistic premise where it's like, I've made it so that your entire family, wife and two kids... Uh, will start dying and you have to choose which one of them to kill otherwise all three of them will die Mm -hmm. and that will be you know my justice for you not being in charge or you know whatever it's it's questionable whether he was drinking the day of the operation of uh, the kid's father or whatever anyway so like it feels like a limp choice to just be like okay and spoiler alerts for killing of a sacred deer to just, you know, he ends up killing somebody in mm-hmm. one of the three people in his family. It's, it's random, which fits in very much with the existential theme, right? Of like yeah. no, nothing, nothing matters. Every, the world is chaos. Uh, the more, you know, it's, I guess, uh, uh, despairing nihilist version of existentialism. Cause there's also a very, you know, Christian version of existentialism that's all about, you know, using your life as you have it. Um but it feels like yeah you're right it is mechanical and I get it's purposely so and it maybe adds to the the darkness of the overall themes of the film and I'm not saying I wanted Colin Farrell's character to figure out a way to keep all three of his family members alive because he's clearly flawed he's very and there's very much like a question there about you know his role as a patriarch and that you know gender roles uh, in many ways play a part in uh, this film. But I just wanted there to be – I wanted there to be something thought-provoking at the ending. And I had so much to think about after Men. Mm -hmm. And after Killing of a Sacred Deer, I was like – it was pretty funny when Colin Farrell showed his armpit hair – but other than that, like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I admire Yorgos Lanthimos as a director much more than I uh, enjoy actually watching and thinking about his movies. And there's a quote of with him in The Atlantic that I think kind of pinpoints exactly my ultimate issue that I take with him. <laughs> they, they ask him, you know, because he, he filmed a real open-heart surgery for the opening shot. Um, yeah. And the interviewer, uh, David Sims, I think, of The Atlantic, asks him, like, you know, why did you choose to start with a shot of a heart? And he says, well, it's a film about a heart surgeon, so I thought it made sense to open with a heart. (laughs) And it's just, like, it's funny, and it's amusing. Hot Rod is funny and amusing, but it doesn't... I don't think it's going to sit with me the way that that men did.
1: Interesting. It's very fascinating. I mean, it's, like, I think the big thing, too, that sticks out to me is that... um... in killing of a sacred deer there is this the characters are so active right they have mm-hmm. to be do they and by the end there's this ultimate act and yeah sure it's random but the decision to uh put a, a mask over your head or whatever and sort of, like spin around in a circle and shoot at <laughs> your family with a rifle is an action right and he just decides to act um even in the face of incredible doubt, And is this guy really true? Like, this is like a myth, like what's going on, but there's the, the protagonist and that is, is making action. But what is, what does Jesse Buckley do in men? Like, how is she acting besides running away from men and like, okay, she stabs one one. It just, man, it just felt, I think to me, it, it, it's almost like in terms of like you're thinking about in music. There's just not enough melody to it where, and there's not enough harmony in the notes to make it all sing. And I think there's a lot of discord and stuff
0: and it's it's like, it's a film about discord though. Right. Uh, Yeah.
1: But I, I mean, in the sense that like, I'm not saying emotional discord, I'm talking like the narrative harmony.
0: See, and I, and I find it harmonious to have the narrative match the theme.
1: Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, So like, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Um, But I guess I think to me, it's that like you, whatever emotional or poetic intention that Alex Garland has It's like the whole, what's the John Cage piece where it's just silence.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of
1: similar to that. It's like, oh yeah, that's cool. In theory, that's cool as an artistic statement. As a piece of music, it's meaningless. Right. There's nothing actually there to engage with. It's posturing.
0: And that (laughs) posturing is
1: important. Right. But it's, you're not actually producing anything right mm, mm. no one listens to that track or song and comes away with it with anything out anything and, and I think sort that of like I mean like that's and then this is Alex Garland's men is not necessarily like that but it's in that realm of sort of let me kind of do whatever I want and not think about the repercussions and not think about how people are going <laughs> to react to it and like this is the end result
0: right and you I mean you're gonna you're gonna either take it as A curio as part of a larger oeuvre, which I think people do with John Cage's piece, where like people do return to John Cage. There's a reason people keep still talking about him. People do return to him. And I think for better or worse, and I think for better, uh, people are going to keep coming back to Alice Garland. And this is just like this one drop in the bucket. But we're gonna we're gonna be talking about men for a while. I'm pretty sure
1: we're gonna give a lot more movies like Men over the next 20 years. For <laughs> <laughs> and the,
0: that's the other thing is like there there could have so easily been like a really like trite bad version of this, right? Where it's like a movie that's trying to be, and this is one of the biggest things that he kept having to deflect on in interviews is like he he it, this script has been existing far before the Me Too movement, right? Yeah. Like, there's got to be so many bad scripts that hope, I mean, at least if they've been produced, I haven't seen them about like, just like tying everything together in a perfect bow about the the relationships between men and women and uh, how men view women, and how men treat women. Um, and I appreciate that he didn't, he decided to uh, eschew that.
1: Mm hmm. I mean, but did he though?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he did title it "Men." I, I
1: mean, yeah, he's pretty much on like he's going for something, right? And it's right. at the end of the day, it's it reminds me of the last house on the left thing. It's like artist's intention versus the consequences of the actual film. Sure, sure. And it's like you know, I think Alex Aaron, his intention was um, to do something special, unique, and interesting. And I think the consequences or the results of it are um divisive at the very least mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and i think unclear i'll
0: right? say this to close this out i think that no matter what your feelings on the film uh this film will do for english cottages in the countryside <laughs> what jaws did for sharks
1: uh, amazing fantastic <laughs> Uh, what do we have coming up next in the uh, existential thriller film it's cycle? It's a good one, Michael Clayton. Right,
0: right. Uh, it is the 15th anniversary of uh, the George Clooney legal thriller, that is kind of one of the deeper uh, iterations of that specific subgenre of thriller, as well as the Chaser film, The Hunt, which I mentioned earlier with Mads Mikkelsen um, as a teacher that uh, gets pretty embroiled in controversy and. Uh, that's by the just recently um, Oscar-winning director Thomas Vinterberg of uh, Another Round. So I'm excited for that, and after that we'll get into, as I mentioned earlier, the game from David Fincher starring Michael Douglas. Gonna Thanks good for one. listening.